like to invite you to turn with me to our text for this morning, uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke 8, 40 through 56, that's on page 840 in the Bibles and the Pews. If you're following along there, we're continuing our sermon series, making our way through Luke's gospel uh, this summer. Uh, We've been doing this for quite a while. We've still got a little ways to go. We've had to uh, skip around and jump around a little bit recently. Uh, But after this morning, we're going to be making a a more direct route towards the end of his gospel. And so Luke writes this for the believers and disciples back then, as well as for us as believers and disciples in Jesus today. He writes, now when Jesus returned, that's returning to the region of Galilee, he's recently been pursuing ministry in another nearby region called the Gerasenes. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and there was a woman there who had been bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you, but Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, every society and culture has certain traditions, norms, and taboos that you simply do not break. Uh, For instance, in many Middle Eastern cultures, guests know not to eat everything on their plate when they go to someone else's home for a meal. That's because doing so, eating everything that you're given, cleaning your plate, communicates to the host that they haven't given you enough, and it shames them. In Navajo culture, people don't leave a meeting, event, or interaction that's still going on because in the Navajo conception of time, that's what communicates respect staying with somebody as long as you're in that interaction. In that culture, start times and end times are seen as fluid and flexible, and so people might show up late and they may stay late, but as long as the interaction seems to be going well and going on, they will stay because it's the staying together that communicates care and respect. And in our own culture, one taboo that you should never, ever break is asking a woman if she's pregnant. 
Same goes, by the way, and I'm speaking especially to us men here, for asking her if the pregnancy was planned, uh, asking if you can touch her belly or if you can rub it for good luck. I never cease to be surprised at the number of women I know who have been pregnant who have had exactly those experiences. Well, in the same way, the first century Jewish people of Jesus' day also had cultural taboos, norms, and traditions that they adhered to as well. The only difference, though, was that unlike today, when breaking one of those taboos simply makes you seem rude, impolite, or uninformed, breaking the taboos in Jesus' culture and in Jewish culture back then actually carried religious significance. That's because instead of just coming across as tactless, transgressing the taboos of Jesus' day could actually make you impure, sinful, or even get you permanently socially ostracized. And yet here in our text for this morning, Jesus breaks not just one of those taboos, but two. Now truth be told, the first one's not really his fault. Jesus is back in the Judean territory of Galilee here after a short stint across the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gerasenes, which was a largely a non-Jewish Gentile area. Uh, And after he returns, shortly after he returns, a local synagogue leader by the name of Jairus comes to him. Turns out that Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is ill. Her illness is serious, too. And so in a last-ditch effort to try and save her, Jairus comes to Jesus to ask if he will go go with him to his house and heal her. Jesus agrees and goes with him. And while they're on their way to Jairus' house, the first taboo-breaking incident occurs. Luke records it in verses 42 through 44 here. He writes, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. That might not sound like that that big of a deal to us today. So a a sick woman uh, comes up behind Jesus, touches his cloak, and gets healed. So what? But in that time and culture, it actually would have been a big deal. In fact, it would have been a really big deal. And the reason it would have been a big deal was because of the kind of sickness that this woman had. You see, among the various rules, regulations, and laws of the Old Testament, there were a number of precepts and guidelines that dealt with people's health and cleanliness, the purity codes, as they were known. And while they mostly had to do with things like food, uh, treatments for various diseases, and how to get rid of different kinds of mold, some of the guidelines in the purity codes were a bit more specific. And one of those more specific sort of subcategories of those laws had to do with something that we see pop up here in this text. It had to do with how you dealt with or handled blood. There are actually a number of guidelines in the Old Testament about blood. Some of them have to do with animals. Some of them have to do with people. Specifically, some of them have to do with women, especially during a certain time of the month. But the basic gist was that any discharge of blood, especially an ongoing one, made a person unclean. The exact details are spelled out in Leviticus uh, chapter 15. And then that person would stay unclean until such a time as that bleeding stopped, and then they would have to go and undergo a a ritual purification process required by the law. So with that in mind, let's take a closer look at our text for this morning. Luke writes that this woman who touches Jesus has been bleeding for 12 years. He writes that no one could heal her. In fact, some of the other gospel writers tell us that she had spent all of her money on doctors in the hope that one of them could find a cure, but none of them could. 
And so her bleeding has never stopped. It's never ceased. It's been going on continually that whole time for 12 years. Well, according to Jewish law, what that would have meant was that she was unclean. In fact, it would have meant that she was permanently unclean. Because her bleeding never stopped, it never ceased, it never ended, she never would have had a chance to go through the required rituals. No chance for purification, no chance to make herself clean again. The other thing that that would have meant is that this woman would have lived in isolation. That's because when someone existed in a constant state of uncleanliness like that, it wasn't just they themselves who were considered unclean. It was also anything or anyone that they came into contact with. As one commentator I read wrote, although this woman's physical condition was not contagious, her ritual condition, her condition according to, her, to the law, according to the commands, according to the purity codes, was. And so while this woman couldn't spread her illness, she could spread her impurity. As a result then, she would have had to live alone, by herself, distant and disconnected from her community, her friends, her family members, everyone else that she knew or cared about. She would have had to stay in her house, quarantined by herself, completely isolated from others. If she had to go out, absolutely had to go out, she would have to, had to call out, unclean, unclean, as she walked the streets of her town so that others would have known to avoid contact with her in order to avoid making themselves impure too. And yet here she is, a permanently impure, permanently unclean woman in clear violation of the Old Testament's purity laws, not only not avoiding others, but actually right there in the midst of a crowd. And what's she there to do? What's, what's made her leave her isolation? What made her come out of quarantine and venture into public? What's so important that she decided to disregard the clear commands of scripture, the codes of conduct, and the taboos that governed her condition? Well, she's actually there to break even more laws, even more rules. She's there intentionally to touch someone, to touch a rabbi, in fact. She's there to touch Jesus. And that's what she does. As the crowd made their way to Jairus' house, this woman made her way through them, fought her way up to the front, came up behind Jesus, and just for a moment caught the edge of his cloak. Luke says that immediately her bleeding stopped. Some of the other gospel writers say she could feel in her body that her suffering was over. At least her physical suffering was. Because her social suffering is actually just about to begin. Because Jesus stops. Who touched me, he asks. One of his disciples, Peter, kind of laughs it off. Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. A lot of people have touched you. But Jesus insists, no, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. I'll let Luke pick up the story here. In verse 47, he writes, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. You see, this woman had probably been hoping for a clean getaway. She'd make her way up to Jesus, quick grab hold of his cloak, and then get out. Maybe she'd be healed, maybe she wouldn't, but it was at least worth a shot. Get in, get what she needed, and then get out. One thing she definitely wouldn't have wanted, though, was this. She didn't want to draw 
attention to herself. She didn't want a public spectacle. She didn't want anyone to know what she'd done. And the reason she didn't want any of that is because it would have had consequences. Remember, as a permanently impure person, anything or anyone this woman touches takes on her impurity. And what has she just done? Forced her way through a whole crowd of people in order to touch a rabbi, a teacher, a holy man. And so in the process, she has infected everyone else there. So that's the first taboo that gets broken here. A permanently impure woman forces her way through a crowd and touches Jesus. And like we said, that one isn't really Jesus' fault. But the next one is. That's because right after Jesus' encounter with this woman, a messenger comes with an update about Jairus' daughter. Luke writes, while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And yet Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He decides to keep going. He says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. And then they continue on together on their way to Jairus' house. And this is where the second taboo comes into play. That's because in addition to the Old Testament purity laws about mold, food, bleeding, and so forth, one of the other subcategories of those laws had to do with death. Specifically, it had to do with how you handled or dealt with dead bodies, with a corpse. Again, the Old Testament spells out the details for us, this time in Numbers 19. But the basic gist, just like coming into contact with someone with a bleeding problem, is that coming into contact with a corpse, a dead body, also made you impure. And yet here's Jesus, having just been informed that Jairus' daughter is dead, deciding to keep going to his house in order to see her. In other words, if Jesus wasn't already impure from this woman who touched him, this, going to Jairus' house, seeing his daughter, coming into contact with her body, that will definitely do it. And yet that's what Jesus does. He keeps going. He goes to Jairus' house, enters the dead girl's room, and taking her by the hand, touching her, tells her to get up. Again, the effect is immediate. Luke writes, her spirit returned and at once she stood up. So two taboos. First, coming into contact with a permanently impure woman and then second, touching a dead girl's body. Jesus breaks both and in the process he makes himself doubly impure. Or does he? You see, there's something strange that happens in this text. Something different, something else, something that's out of the ordinary and not like how these sorts of situations normally go. Again, like we said, when someone or something impure touches something or someone else, it's the impurity that transfers, not the purity. The impurity is what goes from the impure person to the pure person. And yet in both of these cases, when the woman with the bleeding touches Jesus and when Jesus touches this dead girl's body, something does transfer from him to them. The woman with the bleeding reaches out, touches Jesus, and rather than her touch making him impure, she's healed. Jesus enters Jairus' home, reaches out, touches his daughter's body, and rather than that making him unclean, it brings Jairus' daughter back to life. That's different. That's new. That's never really happened before, and that's what Luke wants us to see here. There's something about Jesus, something about who he is, something about his touch that works the other way. It reverses how this normally goes. 
The thing that's supposed to transfer, the impurity, doesn't. And instead, something else transfers the other way, from Jesus to those he touches. And to illustrate that, I'd like to show a video from the Bible Project that gets at this. It's a bit long, about six minutes, so it'll take a bit of time. But I think it does a good job of illustrating what's going on here. Let's take a look. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful as the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there and he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow 
makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity and bringing everything back to life. That's the gospel in a nutshell, my friends. That's what we believe. That's what Jesus does. And not just for people back then, for this woman and this girl and others like them in the pages of scripture, but for us still today too. Jesus reaches out, he touches us, and rather than our impurity, our sin, our brokenness transferring to him, infecting him, he purifies us. His touch justifies, sanctifies, transforms us from sinful, broken people into holy people once again. It gives us healing and life. It gives you healing and life. It gives me healing and life. It gives healing and life to all who come into contact with him. I think we forget that sometimes. You see, as Christians, as as church-attending, moral, upstanding folks who read the Bible and follow God's ways and do what we're supposed to, at least most of the time, we like to think that we're pretty good, right? We like to think that we've got it all together, that we're doing all right, that we're the way that we're supposed to be. That's not what our doctrine says, though. That's not what the Bible says either. And if we're honest with ourselves, deep down inside, it's not what we would say about ourselves. Because the fact of the matter is that we're also broken, sinful people. On our own, we are impure, we are far from God, we are estranged from him, and we are contagious with sin, all of us. 
I don't care if you've been in the church your entire life. Maybe you were born into the church, raised in the church, and never left the church. So was I. And yet sin is just as real for us, just as real for you, just as real for me, as it is for someone here in church for the very first time. We have a tendency, especially those of us who have grown up as Christians, myself included, to think that we're doing pretty well, that we don't really need salvation, that we don't really need help, God's or anyone else's, because we're doing well on our own. But we do. We do need salvation. We do need God because we're impure, we're unclean, we're infected with sin, all of us, every single one of us, no matter who we are. And yet the good news the gospel that we believe, the faith that we hold so dear as Christian believers is that Jesus has reached out. He's touched us. And in doing so, he has transformed us. His power, his purity, his new life has transferred to us. That's what he did for that woman back then. That's what he did for that little girl. And that's what he's done for us as well. That's the gospel. Friends, Jesus took our sin, but rather than our sin making him impure, we instead were given his life. That's God's grace to us. That's his mercy. And that's the salvation that we have received. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, you... You are a God who has never given up despite the ways in which we have warped and twisted and distorted ourselves, warped and twisted and distorted your creation, warped and twisted and distorted our relationship with you. You have always pursued us. You show that in a thousand different ways in the pages of scripture. Lord, we see it manifested most clearly in your son, Jesus Christ came among us, did things so differently, and in the process changed and transformed us from the people we had been to your people once again. Thank you for taking our sin, our impurity, our uncleanliness and brokenness, and instead giving us life. And thank you for doing that through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.